Hello and welcome to the Future Alternative podcast, where we talk to the best and brightest in Australia's plant-based and alternative protein sector. My name is Danielle Bowling and I'm the editor of Future Alternative. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking to Dr. Simon Eason, the new executive director of Australia and New Zealand's alternative protein think tank, Food Frontier. Now, Simon's CV is something to behold. He has a PhD in applied ethics and a background in health and nutrition. He's led a distinguished career as a university professor in the UK, teaching on subjects including environmental ethics, sustainable agriculture, and deep ecology. When it comes to the private sector, Simon's interest in technology and the role it played in future generations led him to join IBM, working across several executive roles. He is regarded as a thought leader on big data, predictive analytics, cloud computing, and AI and has consulted on the impacts of tech on the futures of work, learning, health management, and food. So with academia and the corporate world ticked off, Simon's now diving into the not-for-profit space, leading the team at Food Frontier and helping to build Australia's plant-based and cellular agriculture sectors. Simon joins us today to tell us a little bit more about how he landed in the alt protein space and where he hopes to take it with this new gig of his. So Simon, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Danielle. It's, um, thanks for the wonderful introduction. I almost didn't recognise myself. <laughs> I hope I covered off the guts of it. Absolutely. So in uh, Food Frontiers press release announcing your appointment, it describes you as a seasoned educator, business executive and a futurist. So the first two, I guess I touched on in my little intro and they're relatively self-explanatory, but what exactly is a futurist? What does that involve? Oh, look, there's, there's futurists encompass all sorts of professionals. I tend to think of them as foresight practitioners. I, I use the acronym when people ask me. I use the acronym PDF. That's an easy one to remember. We, we look at what's possible, what's demonstrable, and what's foreseeable. So basically, my interest is in looking at the history of innovation and change and why some things have created significant cultural change uh, and have moved things in a different direction, whereas others haven't. So what can we learn from that about the kinds of conditions and factors that lead to these shifts, sometimes quite dramatic shifts? We just have to look at things like the growth of the Industrial Revolution and the way that completely changed culture and society. And then where are we now? And are we seeing any of the indicators that would lead to those kinds of shifts in the future? And the reason why we want to look at that is because, A, we want to be prepared for anything that might be untoward or that, that may be scary or dystopian. But at the same time, we want to look at the realm of possibility and where we could go with this. And probably the biggest futurology discussion over the last couple of years has been the shift in the world of work. What has the pandemic done with everybody working from home to the office and the way we'll work in the future and how is AI impacting knowledge workers, et cetera. So, you know, I think there's a lot of work going on in the futurology space all the time. And uh, it's fascinated me from a very young age. Yeah, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And, and we'll probably delve a little bit more into that later on in the conversation if we've got time. But again, perusing your CV, it becomes pretty clear that food and food systems have been a keen interest of yours for a little while. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about how alternative proteins first came into your orbit? Uh, well, again, it's a long story. You know, I've got, a, I've got a background from being both a physical educator and sports scientist, amongst other things. You mentioned my applied ethics background, but a very 
strong interest in diet and nutrition, very strong interest as an athlete myself in my younger days around protein and the needs for protein and understanding what protein is. Um, and particularly from our use of things like fungi and legumes and so on and, so, and nuts and so on as part of an, an important part of our nutrition and diet. I think I was also, you know, I lived in the UK, so I was around with the growth of mycoprotein and mycoprotein has an interesting history in terms of its commercial use in the food space with the UK company Quorn, um, which really developed in the 1990s because it developed out of a technology and science project looking at how we could feed the planet when we felt that current agricultural production was not yielding enough for a growing population. When we worked out that there were other technologies that could be used and it was no longer necessary, it was spun off to a commercial entity to produce alternative proteins for the for the ordinary commercial market in the retail sector. So I was a corn eater and have been a corn eater for 30 years. And then I've watched interest in the space and the growth of plant-based meats and now fascinated by what's going on in precision fermentation and the cultivated meat space. So, you know, it's been in, it's been there in, 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 on my radar for, you know, 30, 40 years. And is there something interesting perhaps specifically about this, the Australian market that excites or intrigues you when it comes to the alternative protein space? There's, there's lots of things that intrigue me about this sector anyway, but and certainly in, in the context of Australia, so I'll deal with the two separately. I think that, again, from a futurist perspective, we are on the cusp of applying to food tech some of the things that have been very significant in other technological developments. And I'll give a simple example because it translates across to food tech very, very well. You know, we've gone over the years from understanding around things like diabetes and insulin and the role of insulin in, in diabetes and actually getting our insulin from animal sources, from the pancreas of pigs and dogs and so on, to being able to break down the process in development of insulin and using synthetically produced insulin that we produce in bioreactors and so on and so forth. And those kinds of technologies I think have now caught up with the food industry. So I think the, the next stage of technolo technological development in food is really fascinating. We're on the cusp of that shift. And the way I like to think about this is that food technology is our oldest technology in civilization. It's 12,000 years old. And even things that seem fairly natural and obvious, like animal agriculture, is actually a technology. You know, the way in which we have understood and recognized that we can husband animals and domesticate them and selectively breed them to increase their yield. And then as we've gone on, apply later technologies around things like hormones and, and uh, understanding of hormone additions and use of antibiotics and, and intensive farming procedures to increase your technology has been part of food, food production in the animal space for 12,000 years. And so I think that what's intriguing now is we're at what, what I call end of cycle technology. And so we, we've got to a point where you can't make this system more efficient than it already is. And that's where you see disruption and change, where a new process or a new technological innovation, innovation enables you to shift from one thing to another. And we can think about this with things like the typewriter. The typewriter was around from the late 1700s. It got to the point where we've electrified it. We've replaced those, those arms with letters on, with golf balls. We've got autocorrect. You can't take the typewriter any further as a means of producing printed output on a page. Uh, so word processor came along, and those word processors have dramatically shifted the way in which we produce documentation using voice recognition technologies, we're using autocorrect, we use mail merge, all those sorts of things. 
And I think we're at that point with food technology. So this is a really intriguing space. So the Australian question, well, the Australian question, I think, is quite interesting. We're a very innovative nation, but we're also a nation that often doesn't build on that innovative capacity and lead to commercial growth and opportunity for the country. You just have to look at our mining sector and the way we've mined things like lithium, but we have not led in the world's production of batteries, for example. This is another opportunity in our agricultural sector where we can lead. We are the fourth largest producer of plant-based meats. And when you consider the size of Australia compared to Europe and the US, et cetera, that's quite astonishing. And when we look at precision fermentation companies in that startup space, we occupy about 25% of that startup space. So the Australian outlook is very, very exciting. And our ability to export a great deal of our innovation into Asia, I think is fantastic for the Australian economy. You must be really energised then by this new role at Food Frontier. I'm keen to learn how that came about because it feels like you're diving in headfirst and you know exactly what you want to achieve. Is that a fair thing to say? Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, joining Food Frontier was serendipitous. I, I wasn't out looking to move into this area. I'd been in, you know, in the academic sector for 22 years. I'd then been in the corporate sector for another 16 years. Um, makes me sound very old, doesn't it? Um, I'd, I'd reached a point where, you know what, I, I want to go back to my roots. I want to go back to being mission-driven. I've always been an educator. I've always been very interested in doing things that make a difference to the world, that change people, educate people, get people thinking. I wanted to move back into that area. And so by chance, I saw this opportunity at Food Frontier and it just it tied up all those things. You've, you've already talked about my background in, in philosophical ethics and my interest in animal welfare and animal ethics, but also my own personal lifestyle of being somebody who's a flexitarian and predominantly eats plant-based meats and so on as part of my diet. Also, my health, nutrition, diet, exercise background, as well as that futurist background and my passion for communication, my passion for presenting and stimulating and motivating and exciting other people with strong messaging. And Food Frontier just looked like this perfect opportunity to bring all those together as the next stage in you know my working life. So you know I jumped at it and fortunately Thomas King, you know, Food Frontier's founder and I hit it off and it was a you know a match made in heaven. So your uh, I guess time, albeit you know relatively brief with Food Frontier so far, no doubt would have uh, sort of deepened your understanding of the local sector here and and the various opportunities and challenges that it's faced with. The plant-based component of of alt proteins and the cellular agriculture component are obviously at very different stages of the commercialization journey. What do you think each of those sectors sort of needs most urgently in order for them to drive impact? Yeah, that's a good question because you're right. We are at a very different stage of that journey. I don't see the plant-based meat journey as being something that's so innovative and new that it's really requiring the same sort of approach as cellular agriculture. I mean, plant-based alternatives to meat as center of plate protein have been around for a long time, of course. You know, we've had falafels, we've had tempeh, tofu, so on, and people are used to cooking with those. The way in which the plant-based meat sector is attempting to replicate the experience and taste of eating meat as a center of plate protein, I think has pushed it into a new space. And the application of technology to be able to create those kinds of products, 
And I think that's very much a commercial drive. That's very much a marketing drive because those organizations have, have recognized that for a lot of people, particularly a lot of parents, busy parents with children who have all sorts of dietary choices and preferences, want an easy-to-use substitute, the sort of utility foods that we use all the time, schnitzels, burgers, meatballs, sausages, etc. And so I think that move into that plant-based meat space is a natural one, and it's a commercial proposition. So for them, the challenges are very much around being able to replicate the taste and experience, being able to offer that at a price point that's competitive, being able to convince people of the health benefits and nutritional benefits, and being able to make easy use. They haven't got to think about how they, they haven't got to turn to a recipe book in order to you know, drum up the meal. It's very, very simple. I'm going to replace a meat-based product with another one that's a better price point. So theirs is really around marketing, positioning of their product, but they've got to get the taste experience right and they've got to get the, the cost profile right. The cellular agriculture industry, I think, is in a very different uh, area. The cellular agriculture space is basically saying, we don't think that we're going to see a significant shift away from humans' desire for animal agriculture products like meat and dairy. We're wedded to those products. But we recognize the environmental issues, we recognize the food security issues, we recognize the food poverty issues, et cetera, et cetera. So the best thing for us to do is apply this technology we now have to create a product that is identical to those that will satisfy the demands of that meat-eating and dairy-consuming populace, but can do so at a scale and at a price that is affordable, but does not compromise you know, animal welfare and does not have further implications for the planet. Now, the, t the science has been largely proven. That doesn't mean to say we're at a point yet where we can generate the equivalent of a beefsteak or the equivalent of a pork chop, but the, the science is generally proven. The challenges for them are the investment required to scale production of this at a, at a point where it can even make the slightest impact on the meat industry. We're talking about a $1.8 trillion industry, and even if we wanted to replace 20% of that industry. We're talking about tens of billions of dollars of investment, and we're nowhere near that yet. So a very different challenge for that sector. Yeah, most certainly. What would you see as Food Frontier's role in facilitating the growth of both of those sectors then? Because, you know, people hear the word think tank, a lot of them don't actually understand what that is. Is there a tangible role that you think Food Frontier can play or what do you think, I guess, that role will be, I should say, in, in helping those sectors move forward? Oh, absolutely. I, th I think the role of Food Frontier is actually growing in importance and is, is absolutely essential and necessary. I wouldn't be here, would I, Daniel, if I didn't believe that. <laughs> and I've, I've worked with think tanks in all sorts of capacities over the years, particularly in my days as a, as a university academic. But the role of Food Frontier has slightly changed. I think in the early days, Food Frontier was very much an internally faced organization helping that ecosystem of new companies moving into this space, in that startup space. We were providing support, data, research, information that they needed to go out to the market and get investment. And I think that was a very important role. And Food Frontier still has a very strong place within that ecosystem in supporting those partners in how we can provide them with the information they need. I think now that we're seeing a bit more of a mature market, we've gone from just four manufacturers in Australia to over, over 40 with over 300 plant-based meat products in the market. 
it would be wrong to call that market mature, but it's certainly not nascent, I think. And so the requirements change. And I think Food Frontier's role now is much more externally focused. As a think tank, primarily think tanks are involved in affecting policy change. So I think we've got a much bigger role now in convincing governments that this is a viable market, this is a viable product, that the technology is proven, that the technology is safe. And we're seeing that, of course, with the approval in the USDA of cultivated meat in, the, in America. We've seen it in Singapore. We're going to see it shortly in the EU. Netherlands are at the point where they're about to go to the regulators around their products. And we're going to see it potentially next year in Australia with Val taking their products to Fazant's. So I think it's now around that ex external facing and convincing governments that there is a, a huge economic opportunity here, not only an economic opportunity, but an imperative from both an economic and ecological and environmental viewpoint to invest in this space and, and play a role in this space. I also think we're shifting our focus or need to shift our focus more to education and, and the consumer. And I don't necessarily mean educating the endpoint consumer, but educating other people involved in cultural change, policy change, et cetera, particularly in the climate change area, where there's a growing recognition of the impact of animal agriculture on climate change, and therefore people needing a greater understanding and more provable, verifiable data points around exactly what animal agriculture is doing to the environment. So I see that Food Frontiers is transitioning from very much that industry supportive internal focus to that external focus around how we can have impact. You mentioned sort of consumer awareness now, and I do want to speak about sort of the end user now. One of the um, the key learnings that we took away from an event that we recently held, um, the CELAG Summit, was that businesses need to really remember at the end of the day that they're making food. They're making something that someone is hopefully going to want to eat one day. And I think sometimes the industry, especially the cell ag side of things, can get tied up in the technology and the wonders of science. And uh, that can be said about plant-based as well. But some of the technologies that are being applied in this industry can be very foreign to the average punter, um, perhaps a little bit off-putting. So with your career having walked a bit of a, a tightrope between tech and food, would you agree with that sentiment that we really need to, at the end of the day, be making sure we're speaking about the products that we're creating in a very approachable, familiar way or as familiar as possible, I should say? Yeah, look, I don't see it as a tightrope, Daniel. Um, and as I said from my earlier comments, technology is inextricably intertwined with food production. Food production is a very complex, very complex area. And food technology in itself is very complex. There's a lot of regulation. It's a very long, slow burn getting new products and innovative products into the market and seeing that kind of cultural change. So there has to be a different mindset and mentality. You're not going to sell a new innovative food product to a consumer on the basis that it's novel and different and it's technologically infused, etc. So yes, we understand that. But at the same time, we do see people interested in different foods and trying different foods. I mean, just look at the shelves in the supermarket now. I mean, years ago, not that many years ago, you won't have seen a whole section on sports and health foods, you know, with protein balls and all these your crisps made out of lentils or hummus, etc. So you won't... Um, you know, you didn't see that before. So there's a whole market driven for all sorts of reasons that people are prepared to try novel foods. We are a curious species. 
we are an exploratory species. We are interested in trying new things. If we weren't interested in trying new things, we would not have developed the food and the culture that we've developed around food as it is. We would still be plucking fruit off the trees, uh, digging tubers out of the ground and, you know, chasing down animals and hunting them and cooking them over a fire. So, you know, we, we are very open to innovation around food. But I do think, yes, there is there is a sense of nervousness amongst consumers about what goes into their food. And this is a very important part that we've got to play in communication and the management of disinformation. And this word natural will come up a lot. Natural and nature is probably the most contested concept in the English language. It is very, very difficult to define and very, very difficult. We all use it. We all understand roughly what we mean. But try to get the essence of what we're talking about is very different. Most of our food that we consume is processed. Bread is a processed product. Pasta is a processed product. Unless you're plucking it off a tree and eating it, etc., it is a processed product. What we're concerned about generally in humans are concerned about is whether the ingredients that go into a product are things we don't recognize as food and as such it becomes ultra processed or junk food or something else. And that is a concern. Now, that is not the same concern with looking at how technology has shaped food. And so we've got to be careful how we communicate that. If I can give a counterexample, probably the most lab changed, created, transformed food industry is the poultry industry. If you look at a broiler chicken now compared to what that animal was as a free roaming animal in Southeast Asia, in those, as an indigenous animal in those countries 500, 600 years ago, you wouldn't recognize the animal. The most Frankenstein food on the planet is chicken. You know, in terms of what's been done to chicken, in terms of the antibiotic use, the hormone use, the changes, the way in which we've been able to mature a chicken instead of taking six to nine months to within five to six weeks and move from a society that eats about five, six billion chickens a year 50 years ago to one that consumes 80 billion chickens a year. And the way in which we've used laboratory technology in order to be able to produce that sort of volume and that sort of quantity and yield per chicken to make it commercially viable, you know, that's a real Frankenstein food. But consumers don't see it that way because consumers, they see chickens running around, they know what it is, they know what the animal is. And so that's the biggest challenge for us, that technology has a place in food development. They shouldn't be scared of it. And what we're producing is not something unnatural or is not something that isn't coming from exactly the same sources as where our animal agriculture comes from. We're talking about the real flesh of an animal that's grown in a way that uses a you know, a material machine instead of a biological machine using exactly the same DNA as the recipe for how you grow that animal flesh and using all of the exactly the same products in terms of the hormones and so on that exist within that animal. And that's what's exciting, but it's also what's challenging in the way in which that is addressed, whether you talk about it or don't talk about it, or whether you make sure you communicate that properly. That's going to be the big challenge for this, this industry over the coming years. And is that something that's on Food Frontiers agenda in the next, I guess, few years, I say, or, or is the focus pu- purely on, on government and lobbying to government? No, no, it's on our agenda. And I think it's increasingly becoming something we have to focus on. We're seeing, and you, you don't need me to point out some of the disinformation and misinformation that, that's now being pushed out. And this is a very polarizing issue. And it's not just polarizing from the point of view of the vested interests of competitive agricultural industry. 
it's polarizing from the point of view of investors, it's polarizing from the point of view of the science community, it's polarizing from the point of view of business people and so on. You just have to trawl through LinkedIn and see some of the commentary. So I think it's it's absolutely vital that organizations like Food Frontier get involved with saying, look, let's sort out the difference between hype and reality. Let's sort out the difference between misinformation, disinformation, and factually correct information. Let's not try to, you know, cover anything up or let's not try to present, you know, a particularly biased uh, viewpoint on the part of one sector rather than another. We need to retain our independence. But, and, and, you know, and if there are challenges that say, listen, this is not quite what we thought. And, and in fact, the environmental impact of some of these sectors is just as strong as the environmental impact of what we're trying to replace. We need to call that out and we need to talk about it. We need that transparency. And I think Food Frontier is certainly cognizant of that requirement and we're moving into that area um, as the next stage of Food Frontier's work. Yeah, fantastic. That's good to hear. There's obviously been quite significant progress made in the alternative protein industry globally of late. Various governments are really bolstering their support of plant-based and cell ag. And as you mentioned earlier, Cultivated meat has has now got the regulators nod, uh, or two specific brands have have had their products approved in the US, which is great news. I guess, how encouraged are you by these developments, and do you think that that sort of momentum is going to trickle down to the Australian market? Yeah, it's very easy to just focus on the headline producing changes, so particularly what's happened in the CELAG space. What I'm actually thinking that where we're going to see greater progress, faster progress is in the things that are that are less polarizing. So if you take a company like Eighth Day, they're, they're basically producing high quality protein from lupins that can be used both in blended products, but also to, to produce a plant-based meat type product. But they're taking a very mature industry within Australia with incredible potential that is underdeployed at the moment and offering an opportunity to create all sorts of economic development, economic growth, but also exciting new products that could be used in combination with meat or also independently of meat. Those sorts of changes, I think, are going to see more rapid development than some of these more polarizing ones. So I do think that we're going to see a fluctuation in terms of rapid progress in some areas and maybe even decline. But this is like any new technology. We just have to look at the dot-com industry and various other things. We'll see winners and losers. And I think the focus on the, the more headline-grabbing things like cultivated meat is probably misleading us. There's other stuff on our doorstep that's happening now. You just have to look at the growth of companies like V2, the existence of Impossible and Beyond in our, in our grocery stores and in our fast chain outlets to see that this, this is now established. This is here now and those products will grow and develop and we'll see them becoming more mainstream. So I think it's, a, it's really a case of looking at the different approaches, the different products and so on and so forth. So, and we mustn't forget at those other things, you know, the use of things like fungi and mycoprotein and all of the developments around eating insects and so on. There's, there's lots happening that's beyond just cultivated meat and precision fermentation of dairy products. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's up to us to, to share those stories where we can. So I look forward to doing that together with Food Frontier in, in the coming months and years. So thank you so much for your time, Simon. Congratulations on, on your new role and all the best for it. Thank you, Danielle. And thank you for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today's episode. If you'd like to check out some of our other podcast episodes or sign up for our free weekly e-newsletter, you can do that at futurealternative.com.au.